Man, there's just no good words to transition from that into something else except just to say thank you. He is our living hope. He has loosed the death of grip on our, or the, the grip of death on our lives, set us free from every chain. He's alive, he's here, moving amongst us. How fortunate we are right now to be in this place with him. God, thank you for loving us, for your power, your life, your goodness, your mercy, your grace. Revive us. Revive us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, go ahead and you can be seated. Super glad that you are here uh, this morning. I think that um, the message is going to be uh, twofold. I think part of it you're really, really going to like, and part of it your flesh is going to hate. And if the preacher feels that way, that's saying something right there before you even, even start at it. Um, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I'm talking about serving today and, and genuine serving. Not serving that you get something out of, but serving that you're doing for the Lord. Serving that no one else may see. And that's the kind of serving that, you know, here, here's the deal. Man, if you're a believer and you want your life to count, you want it to matter, you want it to have purpose, you want to find joy, you want to find the abundant life Jesus talks about, you find it by losing your life, not by gaining your life. And it's a mystery and a secret of the kingdom, and I want to talk about it a little bit today. But to get there, I've got to take you on a bit of a journey. So in just a moment, we'll jump into it. I've got just one quick announcement that uh, I've been asked to make, and it's an invitation, and I want it to come from me. If you are new at our church, and let me define new. New doesn't have to be like one or two weeks. Uh, I walked in uh, last evening and just kind of made a general uh, circle around the foyer trying to thank people who do different volunteer things for us. And there was a couple that was sitting by the fireplace, and I just walked up and I said, Hi, my name's John. And they said, We know who you are, Pastor. And I said, Well, how long have you been here? And they said, Three years. <laughs> I said, Sorry, we haven't met each other before. And they said, We were trying to be anonymous for a long time. And I get that. Sometimes you just need to go and be anonymous. You just need to sit. You just need to, you know, you need to, uh, to rest. You need to find a place where you're just... Uh, sort of able to heal her, or, or maybe you're just trying to check it out and see if it's genuine. I get that. Three years is a long time to check it out and see if it's genuine, but I do get that. And um, so what we do, if you are like in that place of like, hey, uh, is this a good place to raise a family? Is it a good place uh, if I'm a single? Is it a good place just spiritually? Where are you at and what do you believe and how do you operate? So, so here's what we do. Uh, we just have a night uh, at our different campus where we, um, we take time for you to come and meet the staff. It's just really informal, shorts, jeans, whatever. Um, it just most of the time is spent just talking to each other and saying hi. And then I do a quick Q&A and let people ask any question. And there's nothing that's out of bounds or uh, off limits. I'm happy to answer uh, anything about the church that I possibly can. And it's just, here's what I think. If you really are considering making it your home, probably one of the most important things is figuring that part of it out. What... What are you all about? Sometimes it's hard to tell by just sitting. You know what I mean? It's just like, how, how does it work? And so we just want to open the opportunity for you. So on uh, February the 6th, which is just, I mean, what is that, 10 days from now? Uh, at 6.30 p.m. here in this auditorium, uh, we'll, we'll do that, uh, that meet and greet. Uh, if you attend the Parker campus and you're, you're listening, um, we, we will be out there, I think, in a month and a half. But you don't have to wait if you want to come over quicker than that and just have a chance to, to say hi. Love to invite you and love you to, uh, to be a part of that right there. And maybe 
maybe because I said the anonymous thing, maybe I should just talk to you. If you have been anonymous, can I coax you out of the shadows? Because it's not supposed to be anonymous when you go to church. And it's okay for a season. I do believe that. I, I, it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And God does want you to find a place. And finding community and growing spiritually, man, we make it possible for you to do that. But you do have to be a part of that with us. And so it's just an invitation. Come out of the shadows and come out of anonymity. Come out of hiding. Come out of uh, being in the background. Come out of sitting by the fireplace. And get involved, man. There's a lot here and there's a lot for you. And God has brought you here with purpose. And I think the next step, uh, come to this. Tuesday the 6th, 630. Love to have you there. You can sign up, uh, jfc.org slash events. And the reason that's important, we do some food with it. Uh, we have child care with it. And um, we have to prepare accordingly. So um, if you are planning on coming to that, jfc.org slash events. And you can sign up uh, that way. And uh, if you don't have access to the internet, then come anyway. We don't, uh, we don't care. Okay, uh, enough of that. Here's our series. It's called Built for Purpose. It's totally designed around the first of the year. We believe that so many people begin to consider um, where their lives are at at the first of the year. They use it as an opportunity, uh, like a slingshot or a springboard, to make good decisions financially or with their health, uh, weight, what they eat, how they sleep, uh, what they're, maybe even a job. Maybe, maybe some people use it at the first of the year to consider all those things. They're all good things to consider, by the way. I'm not against them. I think that's fine. But here, here's what I want to say to you. The most important thing you should be considering is your spiritual life. Everything flows from that relationship right there. And look, I've said this for 21 years. If you get this relationship in the right priority, it makes living this way so much easier. And if you try to live your life with all your energy going this way and then give God the leftover this way, it just tumbles out of control. The great theologian John Lennon <laughs> said, Life is what happens while you're busy making plans. Tell me that you don't have great intentions all the time, but life takes over, doesn't it? And you have to plan, man. You've got to be on purpose about your spiritual life. You really do. So the idea of being involved in community, being involved in groups, being involved in that next level, not just, just hanging in the background and in the shadows, be intentional about your spiritual life. And the benefit to you is that Jesus promises abundant life. He said the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life and not just any life, but abundant life. Abundant life is a partnership with Jesus. It's not simply sitting back and like, hey, God, if you really mean it, come find me. It literally is take a step. Get your expectations up. Use your faith. Say yes to God. Make him a priority. Give him the first part. And so I know maybe that's like drinking from a fire hose for many of you. Like, Pastor, ah, come on. Welcome to Jubilee. <laughs> maybe I should have called it the fire hose. I don't know. And today, uh, we're going to talk about built for serving. Built for serving. And like I said, part of what I have to say, I think you're going to find like really helpful. And I think it'll connect in something to all of us that we, we know, we know intrinsically, if we're followers of Christ, we know it's right, we know it makes sense, we know that God's life is in it, but our flesh at times can be so strong. Anybody in this room ever struggle with your flesh? Eight of us, wow. Let me ask this, how did you learn to kill your flesh so well? I am 55 years old, a pastor for 33 years, a follower of Christ for almost 40, and I still struggle with my flesh. 
every day. You know, you don't like have this one day where it dies and it, it's like a stinking zombie. That you nail it to the cross and you bury it with Christ and it gets back up when people offend you. When you drive in traffic. When your kids. When your money. When your pastor. So we just wrestle with it. And the cure for it is to crucify it. And part of the way we crucify it is to serve. To serve. The kingdom of God is paradoxical. Meaning that it works the opposite of this world. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the least. That's upside down. If you want to be first, which doesn't mean first place, but first in the realm of the kingdom, you have to be willing to be last. If you want to win, you got to lose. Jim, how weird is that right there? You want to win, you have to lose. If you want to save your life, give it away. And if you want to lose your life, spend your time trying to feed yourself and find yourself. You'll be unsatisfied and unhappy. The more you try to work on happiness, the less happy you are. God's kingdom, it's paradoxical. It works the exact opposite. And man, when we live in this world, it's so easy for the flesh to tell us, well, go this way, while God is telling us, go this way. And that's the battle between flesh and spirit. How about this? Don't lose that battle. May the flesh be weakened in your life and may your spirit increase in your life because that's where the abundant life that Jesus promises is found. Did you hear me? That's where the abundant life is at. The life that he promised, the one that's exciting and worth having, it comes when the flesh is crucified and the spirit lives. I think the church, man, is at its best. It shines its brightest and it fulfills its purpose when the universal church, not just Jubilee, but the universal church, the church at large, serves. If you think about since the time of Christ, every major crisis that's ever happened, the church has done its best when it comes to the aid of people. If you look now, even that, that tremendous earthquake in Haiti 10 years ago, after all the NGOs were done and the press was left after 30 days, who do you think is there right now making a difference? It's the body of Christ. It's true. That's never reported. It's never talked about. What's talked about is our flaws and our mistakes. And sure, the church is made up of inhuman, uh, imperfect human. I guess they are inhuman in a way. <laughs> how, you want to? Here's a great uh, uh, Pastor John Yogi Berra statement last night. I'm about to read a story to you about a person who served during the Black Plague. And I said it was so bad, you'd go to sleep at night and wake up dead. <laughs> and everybody was laughing like that. And I, I didn't, I'm like, what's so funny? How about that, Billy? Wake up dead. Yeah. You know, if you're like, wow, that's really deep. Dude, you're not getting Sometimes my bucket doesn't make it down to the well is the problem. So. <laughs> Catherine of Siena was born in 1347. And that very year, according to the writer Charles Mee Jr., in all likelihood a flea riding on the hide of a black rat, entered the Italian port of Messina. The flea had a gut full of the bacillus Yersinia pestis. And with that rat, flea, and bacillus came the most feared plague on record. In just three years, from 1348 to 1350, the Black Death or the Black Plague killed more than one-third of the entire population of the earth at that time. 
You imagine. I mean, we see things come out of Africa like Ebola, and it might kill 20 or 25,000 people, but it doesn't come close to the idea of a third of the population of the earth. Imagine a time when there's not modern medicine. Imagine the strain that it put on communities. It was so bad, and it was a communicable disease, and people didn't realize where it was coming from. They thought it was person to person, and it was, I guess, if the flea infected you. But it was so bad that what people began to do, one of two things, either lock themselves in their house and keep everybody out or get out as fast as they could, leaving all they had behind. It would sweep through communities, and they didn't have enough time to bury the dead. They'd stack them outside. The church felt powerless in many of the ways of dealing with it. Doctors, no answer. People were just... What will we do about this? This young woman named Catherine was a believer in Christ and had gathered together a group of other believers who felt that God had called them to minister to the people who were affected by the plague and not to run from it. So where the church and where medical science abandoned, they went in. And the light that shines the brightest in the darkness, that's the light. Uh, just let me read to you what the symptoms look like, what they were dealing with. The first symptoms of bubonic plague often appear within several days. A headache, a general feeling of weakness, followed by aches and chills in the upper leg growing, a white coating on the tongue, rapid pulse, slurred speech, confusion, fatigue, apathy, and a staggering gait. I thought I had it. <laughs> I, am not, I read this, and I, I got every one of those things going on. Have you ever read, like, I think I have that right there. I was, my pulse was, uh. A blackest pustule usually would form at the point where the flea would bite you. And by the third day, the lymph nodes begin to swell. The heart begins to flutter rapidly as it tries to pump blood through swollen, suffocating tissues. Subcutaneous hemorrhaging occurs causing purplish blotches on the skin, and it would turn a person black from the internal bleeding. That's why they called it the black plague or death. You imagine dealing with how fearful would it be just to even see it, let alone touch it. The victim's nervous system begins to collapse, causing dreadful pain and bizarre neurological disorders. By the fourth or fifth day, wild anxiety and terror overtakes the sufferer, and then a sense of resignation to death. As the skin blackens and the rictus of death settles in on the body, it's hard to grasp the strain that the plague put on the physical and spiritual fabric of society during that time. People went to bed perfectly healthy and were found dead in the morning. Priests and doctors felt helpless, and yet this woman with a small group of believers boldly, with great authority and conviction that their own lives were not more precious to them than the lives of the people who were suffering, went in to be Jesus. Let me read to you what was recorded from an author. Not my opinion, not what I think happened not what I would like to happen, not a Hollywood story. This is recorded from an author of that time. I think it's so powerful. It's just unbelievable. The 19th century historian Philip Schaff wrote that during the plague, Catherine was indefatigable by day and night. She healed those 
of whom the physicians despaired, and at times she even raised the dead back to life. Not her or one of her people caught the plague. And she didn't die until 15 years later as an older lady. And it's a story that's been lost in history, but what I want to assure you is that all through history, since the time of Jesus, the church has been doing that thing right there. And when we live our lives that way, the light shines the brightest. But when we forget who we are and we live for ourselves, it's the dimmest. And then the criticism about what we exist for is all up in question, and that's what you hear about. And really, in many ways, it becomes nothing more than a club, and it's supposed to be so much more than that. You live when you die, and when you die, you live. And it's just a opposite kingdom. If you have a pen or a pencil and you want to fill in the blanks, here they are real quick. Built for serving. Built for serving. Uh, real Real fast, um, as much as I like the message, this isn't my idea. Where does it come from? Um, if you're a follower of Christ, Jesus set an example for us, and the scripture is full of it. So if you just read the Bible just to see what Jesus did, you'll see all over the Bible that Jesus was a servant. The Bible says that he came not to be served, but to serve, to seek and to save what was lost. He came not as a king, but as a lowly servant. Over and over and over, the Bible is full of the idea that as Christ followers, if we call him our Lord, if we're fully devoted to making Christ our King and our Lord, the way that we prove that is to do what he did. There's much more power in doing than saying. Philippians chapter 2, 5 and 11, really familiar scripture. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as who? Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and here's the reason to the glory of the Father. The reason we do what we do as we follow Jesus is not to make it about us, it's to make it about our God and our King. He's the one. And when we live lives worthy of that, that point to the fact that we're not living for ourselves, but living for him. Dude, if you're bored, you've missed the kingdom of God. You've missed it. It's gone right by you. And there's a mystery, a secret, a, a passage, an entrance. It's narrow and it's tight and it's hard to find. But if you find it, it's the way to life. And if you miss it, it passes you by and you wonder, what is everybody so excited about? What is so good about it? And the truth of fact is this, that without the kingdom, it is all boring. Church, without the kingdom, oh my goodness. You're better off going to play bingo. But church in the kingdom. Mm. So let me just give you three things, and I don't know if I'll get to them. I didn't in the last one. I got stuck on one and had to skip fast. So I'm just warning you. I don't know. I, you know, I pray in each one that God, whatever he wants to do in that one, that I'd just be available. So we'll see. 
One is just simply the most influential person in the room. The most influential person in the room. Uh, just real quick. Um, when you think about the most influential person that you know, maybe it's at your work, uh, maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's uh, uh, where you socialize. Um, I, I don't know. But when you just think about influential people, how do they act? Most influential people that I know make it about them. They're influential for a reason. They're usually charismatic. They're usually large and in charge. By the way, uh, title has little to do with who's in charge. Because if you have to say you're in charge, because my title says I'm in charge, guess what? You probably aren't. You want to know who's in charge? It's who's got the influence. So when you look around a room and there's a group there, who's being listened to? That's who's in charge. That's the influential person. Influence is a powerful thing. My question is just simply, how do most influential people act? Chris and I, a couple years ago, uh, went to a conference that was an awesome conference. And if I told you the pastor's name, you'd instantly know who it is. But I'm not going to do that because the story I'm going to use is a little embarrassing. And I'm not up here to embarrass anybody. But he's a multimillionaire many times over as a pastor because of the books he writes and the movies he produces and the conferences that he has. I mean, 20,000 people were at the conference we were at. Imagine. The guy's an anointed teacher, gifted. I mean, every time he's taught, it penetrates my heart. It reaches me in a way that few people can. You ever have those speakers? You know the ones that I'm talking, that can get to your heart. Not your head, but your heart. Man, it's great if they reach your head. It's great if they touch your brain. It's great if they intellectually stimulate you. But when they get your heart, they get your brain too. This guy gets me, man. He just gets me. And everything that he was saying, I was buying his books. I'm buying the CDs. I, dude, I can't spend it fast. It was, I'm, I'm drinking the cooler. <laughs> and then he said this, and everything stopped. He said, when I come in the room, I make my staff stand. He said, no one's allowed to talk to me unless I talk first. He said, I'm trying to teach them that the man of God is worthy of respect and honor. And I thought, where do you get that from? Because the only one that was ever worthy of it, never demanded it, never required it, never pulled it, and never acted like he had to have the power. Yes or no? You know, at the culmination of Jesus' ministry, three years after he started, after the miracles, after the teaching, after living day and night with the disciples and pulling them and drawing them and showing them, and he's ready to release them, and he's headed back to heaven on the most influential night of his ministry, the time when he could exercise the most influence, we get the greatest understanding and example of who he was, how he acted, and what we're supposed to do. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That just simply means he was always consistent. He didn't stop and give up or get afraid or back off when it came to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So he's in total control right now. It's his choice. Nothing's being forced on him. And with that, he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, and with his influence, 
began to tell the disciples, stand up when I stand. Bow down and worship me. Give me all that you have. Do you see Jesus do any of those things? It even sounds weird when I say it, doesn't it? So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Real quick, why do you think the towel's wrapped? Why not use another towel? I think he wanted to show them I'm connected to what I'm trying to clean you and save you from. It's getting on me. It's a part of me. I'm taking it on myself. It's not me versus you. I'm you and you're me. It's a powerful thought. It's just a little, a little clue. Uh, Simon Peter, who I so identify with his big mouth, <laughs> he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Here's me. Then, not just my feet, but my hands, my head, all of me. <laughs> Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you is clean. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. He sat down, and then he asked this question. And any time God asks a question, it's not because he lacks the knowledge, but he wants you to realize something. Here's the question. Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you get it? Does it make sense to you? Are you picking this up? Are you not just observing me right now, but do you understand all of it has come to this. This is what it means. It's to save, to give it away. It's an example I set for you right now. You call me teacher and you call me Lord, and rightly so. He is the most influential one. For that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here it is. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. No messenger is greater than the one who sent him. And now that you know these things, you will be what? Blessed. This is the abundant life. This is the mystery, the secret, the narrow way. You live when you die. You come in first when you're willing to be last. You win when you lose. You gain when you give, and you lose when you hoard. When you make it about you, it's not ever about you. And when you don't make it about you, it ends up satisfying you. And he sets this incredibly powerful example that he even tells us you're to follow this and do this, and I'm the most influential one. You call me Lord, you call me teacher, and rightly so because I am that and I've showed you. So here's how to act. Give it all away. Take care of each other, care for each other, wash each other, help each other, live for each other, prefer each other. How do I say it? So easy to shake your head yes and so hard to put into practice, isn't it? So let me give you two examples of foot washing. They're so, they're such dichotomies from each other. I did a wedding this summer for a young couple that I just connected to and bonded with and I had such fun with them. 
Man, they loved each other, and I loved doing their wedding. And I felt so honored that they asked me, and it just went so well. And the guy had this special surprise for his bride. In the middle of the ceremony, right after their vows, he wanted to wash her feet. And he asked me, Pastor, what do you think? And I said, you know, it, it, it sounds great in theory. <laughs> it really does. It's, it's like, you know, it's a powerful thought. But, like, here's your bride in her dress, and you're going to try to, like, pull her shoes off. And, you know, it's, and he's just like, I just think I just need to do this. So it's not my wedding. It's his wedding, her wedding. So I got him to that point, and he had a little basin and towel hidden to the side. And all my job was to do at that point was just to step to the side and let everybody watch. And here's why he did it. He wanted everyone to understand that a man leads by serving and not by demanding. And so as he began to wash her feet, he begins to weep. And I've got a camera on my iPad, and I just happen to flip it on real quick and catch it, and she begins to weep. And I begin to weep. And here's what I know. When the tangible, actual, real presence of Jesus shows up any place, this is outside in a secular place, everybody knows Jesus is there. And we're caught up in a moment where heaven comes to earth, and it's I've got it on film. It's, it's powerful. How beautiful. How poignant. How much we think, oh, it's to do that. Let me give you the dichotomy. Here's what it's really like. Two years ago, I went to Peru. Uh, James, you were with me on that one. And um, we're connected in Peru in a really powerful way. A friend that's been a friend for almost 30 years ends up as a missionary down there, and I didn't even know he was there. And I happened to, um, to be in Lima, in an airport, with an interpreter who mentions this guy's name from in my past. And I just ask, what name did you say? She tells me, and I said, is he from Alaska? And she said, yeah, he is from Alaska. And I said, he lives here? And she said, yeah. She gets him on the phone, and I'm talking. And he drives over to the airport, and I haven't seen him in years. And he tells me that he's down there as a missionary now, working with orphans. There's so many throwaway kids in that area. And I knew God was doing a supernatural thing, and I don't have time to tell the story. But I, I knew it wasn't just give money to it, give your life to it. And I've been many times. And I've watched God multiply in so many people the ministry that we have in this area. And when we go and we minister to orphans that are in orphanages, it's, it's powerful. You know, you can't think first world. You have to think third world. And the problems that you and I deal with, like our internet, it's not fast enough. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Are not what they deal with. But an orphanage there is far better than the streets. And so a kid in an orphanage, you'd walk in and you'd see it and you'd think, wow, really unfortunate, but they're actually the lucky ones, aren't they? They're the lucky ones. Because they have clothes, and they have food, and they have a roof. But the ones that live on the street. So my friend Larry, who's the missionary, says, John, I want to take you and show you something. He said, these are 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14-year-old kids who have no home and live on the street in downtown Lima, a city of 8 million people, like New York City. He said, they make money by stealing and selling. What do you think they sell? Think again. Go a little deeper. 
and their lives are so miserable that they spend their days huffing. Do you know what huffing is? It's glue or this metallic paint that's gold or silver. And they put it in a little baggie, and it's just big enough to fit over their nose and their mouth, and they back and forth, and it gets them really high. The problem is it destroys their brains, and most of them don't live past their early 20s for whatever reason. And we've been doing this really powerful ministry to all these kids in these orphanages, and I feel so good about it, and I'm playing soccer, and I'm buying mattresses, and I'm giving away your money like crazy. It's awesome, man. I'm having such a good time. And then he takes me down here to these kids, and um, they're shoeless. And they're filthy, and they're hard, and they're high, and they're indifferent. And where it's gone so good in these other places, and the kids just love us to walk in, and they surround us, these guys look at us like, what do you want from me? You get what I'm saying? Can you pick up on the subtlety of it? So they're holding me like this at arm's length. And I'm trying to share with them. And so the only thing I can think to do is we buy them some food at this chicken place. And then we give them shoes. James, you were there. You know I'm telling the way that it is. We go into this place that was, it was not nice. And not nice by third world standards. And their feet are filthy. I mean, not dirty. Not like your kids' feet when they jump into bed. <laughs> Filthy, blackened from the filth. And we're going to give them brand new shoes. And then my friend Larry goes just like this. John, why don't you wash your feet before you give them the shoes? And I'm like, why don't you wash their feet? <laughs> Missionary. I don't say that out loud because he's put me on the spot in front of all these kids. But I'm like, so, man, I've been down, and I am so mad. I am, I am thinking I am going to read him the riot act when I get done with this. I'm going to tell him you should have prepared me for this. And if you really thought it was so important, you should have brought something that we could have actually cleaned their feet with rather than my shirt. And their feet stink. And no matter how hard I scrub, I can't get it off of them. And now it's on me and I become like them. I'm so mad. But you think we're giving them new cars. Every pair of shoes, they're dancing around the room and they're celebrating. and they're. It's one of the great joys in life. Doing something for someone who can never pay you back. You know, I'm no pastor to them. I'm a white-faced American. And in the middle of it, as the Holy Spirit is so want to do in our lives, Jim, this scripture comes back to me. What you do to the least of these, you're doing it to me. And all of a sudden, this thought, if it were Jesus sitting here, would you wash his feet? Gladly. And if you're a Christ follower, answer the question for me real quick. Would you wash his feet? Look at me, Christ follower. Would you wash his feet? I bet you'd do it every day for the rest of your life, and you'd be glad to do it, wouldn't you? But we just can't see Jesus in the face of the thing that's aggravating us. We don't see Jesus in the person in front of us in a line, and we never see him in traffic. And we sure know he doesn't live with us. 
It's easy to think Jesus is 5,000 miles away from here. Jesus is going to be out there in that parking lot when you try to drive out. And when you go home and when you go to work tomorrow, and what you do the least of these you do to me. And here's Larry's, uh, Larry's model for his ministry. Is, it's Jesus' work. Don't forget the widow and the orphan. The poor. Paul said pure religion undefiled is this. Take care of the widow and the orphan. And so we're doing this ministry and all of a sudden, man, when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, would it be different if it was Jesus? All of a sudden there's a gladness in me and the anger subsides and a willingness to wash their feet. And I think you switched off with me a little bit and did some of them to help me out. And we never really did talk about that because it was just hard to even talk about. Crying, yeah, bawling, and feeling so humbled by it, huh? And feeling so fortunate for what you have. And not knowing what to do, and yet inexplicably can't waiting to go back and do it again. It ruins you. It changes you. And then you come back where everything's about me. I challenge you, go home today, Billy, look on the top 100 bestsellers on the New York Times and half the books are about how to make yourself happy. And the more we read and the more we study and the more we buy stuff how to make us happy, the less happy we are as a people. It's the law of diminishing returns and it's an upside down kingdom. If you want to be great, be least. You want to be first, be last. You want to win, lose. You want to save your life? Give it away. And you want to lose your life? Make it all about you. And people don't understand that. How about this one? Have you heard this one? Follow your dreams. If you're a Christ follower, follow your Christ. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. We make the message about us. Pastor, motivate me. Pastor, speak to me. Pastor, help me. Pastor, encourage me. And I get it. I get it. God gives us the gift of encouragement, and we need it. But it's not about me. It's about a king and a kingdom, and you're part of his kingdom. And when you find your place in the kingdom, you find life. But when you make it about you, the message didn't motivate me. The message offended me. The music's too loud. The chair's too uncomfortable. The people park too close. And the little guy can yell too loud. Me, 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 me. What's your bowling towel? What is it? What is it that you're avoiding? Who? What's God calling you to sacrifice your flesh to? What will humiliate and crucify your flesh, but your spirit will come alive if you do? It never comes in a pretty package like a bride at a wedding. It comes as a messed up kid or an angry person or a hurt friend or a disillusioned believer or a person who suffered great loss and your opportunity to be Jesus it's so easy 
What's your bowl and towel? If you can't think of one, how about this? Look at me real quick. If you can't think of one, maybe you're living too sheltered of a life. Maybe you have inoculated yourself from this world so much. How you like me now? It's good when it's about a bride, but it's hard when it's about us. It speaks to the spirit because if you're born again, the spirit cries out for it. But your flesh wars against it, doesn't it? It's not a message that's preached much today. Most messages are about how to live a better life, be a better husband, get further along. There's nothing wrong with doing good, but we make the kingdom of God all about us. You're so quiet and it's making me nervous. <laughs> are you breathing? I'm going to have to cruise because we're out of time. So here's the fill in the blanks. Serving that brings promotion. Many times what we really think is that, um, you know, if I serve in the kingdom and if I do the right thing, then God's going to promote me. We use that scripture that says if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the big things. If you've done the little, I'll give you much to be in charge of. Mostly, the reference of that is heaven, but we tend to make it about what we have here and now. But can I just point this out? That serving promoted Jesus to a cross. And that if you're really doing serving the right way, it's crucifying your flesh. And if you find yourself discontented as a believer and wondering where the life of God is at, I would challenge you this week, serve somebody and find life. Give your life away to find it. The third one is just simply the mystery of fulfillment, which I talked about. I won't spend any time on it. The mystery of fulfillment is just this. The more you try to be happy, the more it will elude you. The more you make happiness your goal. If life is all about how you can be happy, it will elude you. And the more you try and the more you spend and the harder you pursue... It'll stay just out of reach, and you'll spend your whole life trying to reach something that you can't get your hands on because it's a paradoxical kingdom that's lived out in even the natural world that when you give away, you increase, and when you try to increase, you lose. Where do you think the message comes from? This is the gospel that Jesus gave to us. This is what he did on his most influential opportunity. Was take off what he had, put on a towel, and wash our feet. And I wonder as I say it, what you think. You know, I didn't plan this. I didn't know it. Communions this weekend. You would think I'd be smart enough to look at the calendar and go, a great message that would tie into the two. But God must have known. Because here I used the very scripture we use many times for communion. And can I just say, we take this so many times and we make it about us. God, I want to experience. How about this? Let's take it and say, God, I want to give away. I want to give to you. I want to lay it down. Real quick, and then I really am. I, I, last week, we had that wall up, and I talked about shame and confess your sin. 
Give it to God because Jesus nailed it to the cross and you shouldn't be carrying your shame. That thing that you hold on to, it's, it's creating an ark that your life is going in. And the most powerful thing about the gospel is it can't change your past, but it can alter your future. Confess your sins one to another to receive your healing. And I said, how do you go from zero to 100? Let's just start on these paper. Keep it anonymous. And we'll put it on that wall. And it filled up far more than a 1,000 things were on that wall. So by the way, I took them this week, and I went through them for this reason, so I would know the condition of my flock, so I would know what to teach in the future. And then I shredded every one of them so that there's no resemblance of them existing anymore. But I just want to say this. The vast majority of the things that were written on that paper that have caused people such shame began with things that people were doing to try to find happiness in their life. And it eluded them and became a thing that controlled them and shamed them. Do you hear what I'm saying? It made them feel so dirty and unclean. And Jesus calls us to be washed to be free, to be whole. You got it? Let's grab it real quick. That top one is uh, just a piece of cellophane. If you'll pull that back and grab the wafer, and then it's a piece of foil. Pull it back to get access to the juice. While you're getting ready, let me do the same thing here. So the Bible says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, that's what we just read about, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body. Take and eat, and as you do, remember me. What are we remembering? Who he is and how he lived, and the example that he set, and what he's done. And that if we are Christ's followers, then we do what he did. We don't just admire it, but we partake of it by taking it into ourselves. And maybe you can't do this message, but you can say, God, work in me. And if that's you, let's eat together. And the Bible says, in the same manner, he took the cup and he lifted it to heaven and he thanked the Father and he said, it's now the new covenant. It's my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. The Bible teaches us it's a better covenant because it's based on better promises. God, we want the promise. Not just eternal life, but the life here and now that you call us to. And we realize it's a narrow way. It's a difficult way. Uh, many people, God can't see it and it passes them right by. But the mystery simply is we live when we die. And we die when we make it about us. God, we want to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. God, I want it. I want it. Let's drink. The song that Jay has is intentional. Um, it very much is planned for this moment in time. And I think the words are super powerful to maybe lead us into a confession of... God, do this in us.
God, it's how we want to see and think and be. And so I would encourage you, I went seven minutes and 49 seconds too long. Okay? Yeah, thanks. For You're a kind person. I mean that. Thank you. Thank you. Instead of just jetting, would you take a moment and let the Holy Spirit seal this in your heart? And we'll be done in about five minutes. You guys want to stand up with us? I could just sit, I could just sit and wait for all your goodness, hope to feel your presence. I could just stay, I could just stay right where I am and hope to feel you, hope to feel something again. I could hold on, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. I could be safe, or I could be safe here in your arms and never leave home, never let these walls down. But you have called me higher, you have called me deeper, and I'll go where you called me higher, you have called me deeper, and I'll go where you will lead me, Lord, where you lead me, Lord, you lead me, Lord, you lead me, Lord, please leave me, lead me, Lord. I could hold on, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. And I could be safe, I could be safe here in your arms and never leave home, never let these walls down. But you have called me higher, you have called me deeper and I'll go where you will lead me called me higher, you have called me deeper, and I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper, and I'll go where you will lead me, Lord. You have called me higher, you have called me deeper, and I'll go where you You lead.
prayer, Jesus. I pray, Lord, for any person in this place that's just seeking that calling, that place that's deeper with you, Lord. If this message has rattled places inside of us, Lord, that you would meet us and lead us into all that you have, Lord, because it all comes back to you. We want to be a church that puts our actions to the goodness that we know in you, Jesus. So as we walk out of here, Lord, would you lead us? Put that action to those words right there, Lord, that our request, our prayer, Lord, is that you would lead us into our week, Lord, with fresh eyes, fresh ears, Lord, that every person we come in contact with, the way we carry ourselves, Lord, would be as if we're serving just you, Jesus. Thank you for this room of people. Thank you for your heart for us, God. Just draw us out, Lord, into bigger, bigger horizons, bigger places with you, Lord. Also, you can have the glory. We love you. We seal this time like Pastor John said, Lord. You lead us, God. Amen. Thank you for being here, you guys. Have a good rest of your weekend. We love you. We can't wait to see you next weekend.